Reef Therapy by Reef Builders is brought to you by ICP Analysis. What's in your water? Mark Vanderwall, what's going on, my briefing brother? Happy midway of the week. Man, this is yeah, a long Yeah, we're week halfway there. Even though we have I Monday do most, <laughs> I do most of my work in the first three days of the week, and then it's just Thursday and Friday is kind of like the work I want to do, for sure. Oh, that's good. We had a bunch of... Uh, outages at my work that weren't caused by us but by caused by vendors we work with and uh so i got called at two in the morning and then at the end of the day when it was like quitting time something else broke and you're like oh you got to be kidding me man i'm so ready for this day to be done so but it is what i it feel is. you no so. uh having monday off was good memorial day off um but last week uh we had our European editor Jeremy Gay went out to Inner Zoo. Yeah. And so it was cool to actually take a little trip on Sunday and come back to a bunch of stories. Where'd you go this weekend? I went to New York. Oh, did you? For one day. I was eight hours in the, uh, on a plane and eight hours on the ground. I went to Mount Kisco, New York, with a local friend of mine, Sumer Tiwari. And uh, he's currently um, saltwater curious, but mostly like a really good diehard uh, freshwater aquarist. Yeah. And we went out there on a special mission to acquire some very, very fancy placos. Nice. I've been playing freshwater a lot lately because my reef tanks are just so banging. I'm going to get into that a little bit. Um, but you're familiar with the zebra placo, right? Yeah. Yeah, so there's a version of the zebra placo. Um, a lot of the placos from the Rio Xingu in Brazil have not really been identified or described. Mm -hmm. And so um, German communities, by and large, they started numbering uh, placos with L numbers because they're part of the lower carity family. And so this placo is called L173. And I believe it's a just a natural population of uh, hybrids um, between zebra placos and something else. And it's very similar to the Syngamions that we see with like the um, orange face angelfish, the scribbled angelfish, the blue line angelfish, and uh, like the blue phantom that Poma Labs is offering, right? So there's a similar situation happening with these freshwater placos. And um, these variants of the zebra placos are like uber rare you know definitely almost like bolina angelfish territory except that you can spawn them so we picked up some youngsters we picked up the breeding group and um it was just really awesome we carried him through security six bags <laughs> six bags of fish i think there's like 40 fish across six bags and it was just you know it sounded a lot worse i mean i trained all last week to go to bed early and wake up early because i had to get up at like three in the morning to leave here at four to catch my flight at six, get to New York, get to rent a car, drive to Mount Kisco, you know, meet this guy for the first time ever, see his fish, you know, negotiate what's going to happen. Then we bag up all the fish for, um, you know, a medium length journey. Yeah. And uh, then got him through TSA. Uh, you know, it was, I was 50 50 on whether we we're going to get through with that many fish. But TSA does have some provisions for carrying things on. So 
if you have corals, you just have to have a resealable container so they can open it and just kind of waft over it. And this mm -hmm. is what I do sometimes when I carry corals home. But this time they were fish and they were in bags. So we could have opened them up and reclosed them because I had a bunch of rubber bands. But um, uh, we got through just fine because, you know, the fish are swimming around. They can see that it's, you know, living water. It's not a crazy chemical. chemical yeah. And then, uh, yeah, you know, uh, definitely hat tip to Southwest. That was a really great experience. Uh, no delays and got home on time, and that was great. And, uh, you know, I've been working on my my new freshwater aquarium display. It's nice to have something else to work on while the reef tanks are just growing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right? Because this is a hobby, and we like to do stuff from fragging corals to curating them to moving stuff around to changing your equipment. And it's nice to just reach a kind of a plateau with the saltwater aquariums to be like, all right, well, I'm going to go focus on the freshwater tanks now. But that being said, um, last week I did salt up the 400-gallon aquarium and uh, just now start to make plans to put some corals in it. Very excited. My whole goal this 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 entire time since you told me you were you know coming back to town, I was like, I have to have one coral in that tank. <laughs> <laughs> one coral in proof that of tank. Life. So I'm gonna find a a token coral. Yes, a proof of life. That is a great saying. I have to find uh, one coral to put in there. It's gonna be clean of parasites. I don't, I don't really have any, and clean of reef pests. You know, I'm not. I'm really just want to go out of my way to to set this tank up from scratch without any piece of live rock. You know, let the bacteria do their thing, but I feel like the only way to uh, introduce that bacteria is going to be to add first a living coral. So um, they had three primes on it. I took one prime off and replaced it with one of the Hydra 64s that I took off the tank that I put the radions on. So yeah, that tank is, is ready. Um, although it was like, it was crystal clear with fresh water for a long time. And then we salted it up. I'm like, Hmm, it's not as clear as it was. So I almost feel like putting a skimmer on there, even though there's like no biology and there's no, not, not, you know, it's, there's nothing happening in that tank, right? It's soaked for like the last three months. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, yeah, I got the, the, the new freshwater display, the new 400 gallon display. And, uh, um, yeah, my acros are coming out of the water on the coral tables. Uh, so it's time. It's it's almost like the urgency of okay, let's it's time to get these colonies out and put them into a larger tank where I can really see them because right now they're in coral tables. So if I really want to see them, I got to turn the flow off and it's like a you know uh, a ritual to turn the flow off and adjust the lighting as needed and be like oh yeah the corals are doing pretty good. Nice. Yeah, I yeah. I'm looking forward to. Uh, was that was I there? Yeah, I was there last year, right? Last summer. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that'll be a big change. Plus, I'm looking forward to seeing what you're doing with the freshwater space just because I love freshwater fish as, equally as much. Um, it's funny that you mentioned you were in New York because I'm going to New York next week, but not for fun reasons, more for uh, work. But, uh, um, yeah, I, I was trying to figure out something in the evenings I could do that was fish-related, but uh, I don't know probably get out of the office too late to have anything be open or you know anywhere to go so i'll just so right online. before we started recording um we were talking about your upcoming appearance with reef bum which should be live by the time most people yeah i'm doing that tomorrow catch night. this podcast or watch this video mm -hmm. 
That'd be interesting. And you were talking about how you're not an SPS person anymore. And I'm like, man, I know that it's still in your DNA. You're just taking a pause, however long. Well, <laughs> You're so, still an acronaut. I know it. I know this about you. What I'm not doing is SBS dominant, where you know 90% of your coral are SBS, right? So, I mean, I have three acroporas, two montiporas in my tank, but they're just another coral, like every other coral. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's, uh, they're they're not the center of attention. They're just another plant in the garden, you know? So, and I, I don't know. I mean, the 225 that I set up on my 40th birthday, that was my birthday gift to myself with permission, you know, for my wife to spend the money. That was the biggest <laughs> tank I ever set up. Um, and I was limited in space because of uh, the unfinished basement below. I, I only felt comfortable supporting that floor only so far, right? So a 225 was sort of the max I was willing to do. Um, and then I threw it full of SBS and then the SBS start to get big and then it's like, okay, <laughs> I don't know. It's just uh, our acroporas when they're grown into large colonies are beautiful, but then, then you're hacking them back because they're growing into each other. Um, I just found them less interesting. So yeah. So I, I told uh, Keith, you know, I'm a recovering SPS addict. <laughs> I'm in recovery. Um, <laughs> Is there such a thing? See, I don't believe that. I just, I just don't believe that. I just feel like you're such an SPS nut that you're like denying yourself. I do understand going through phases, and if you, you know, both of us, both you and I have reefed for a couple of decades, and you want to cycle through stuff. And I don't want to do that. That's why I have 17 reef tanks and everyone has like different kinds of corals in it. Um, but I feel like, you know, you only have four tanks. So you just have to like kind of pick and choose at any given time. But tell me a little bit more what you were describing about your mini reboots of your current tank, which is what, <laughs> six, eight months old, maybe? Yeah, so I was sharing him some video and pictures, uh, which I also uploaded a, a recent video uh, on my, I don't have a YouTube channel, but just, you know, um, affiliated with my uh, Google identity. And I'm sure you've seen me comment on some of the reef therapy comments so you could backtrack to if you want to see those videos. But uh, I shared those uh, with Keith as well. Um, and I was just laughing while watching some of that because I set up this tank, this new tank. Well, it's not new, but uh, a year ago. And, uh, but then I was, I kept finding what I, you know, I, I like, oh, the negative aqua, NSA aquascape, right? And then I hated that and I hacked that back. And there were just uh, a couple of uh, moments along that last year where I didn't like something. So I hacked it back. Then I removed a, you know, huge leather coral that made me have to re-aquascape and cut things back. So it looks like I set up the tank a month ago when it's been running for a year. Um, and so I was just sharing that with him of like, yeah, it looks, there's not much growth there, you know, and, and now to, to your point, uh, and, and almost, uh, hypocritical to what I just said, I was telling you, you know, part of me thinks, uh, this tank I have in the basement, which I jokingly refer to as the angel free zone, because that's where I keep the corals that I don't trust around, uh, my angel fish, um, I could put all of these big softies in there, you know, and then put more acros in the upstairs tank. But I don't know. It's 
it's like you you work so hard to grow these acros out and then what you know i i don't i almost like lps corals a lot like softies are easy to hack back they're weeds right and then lps are fun because they just grow slow you know i mean I, i've never had to prune my blastomusa right it's just <laughs> it just grows a little bit bigger and gets a little prettier you know and uh Candy cane corals, I've had to hack back and hammer corals, branching hammers. But uh, I don't know. It's just uh, sort of into the topic we want to talk about tonight. But uh, I just find a variety of corals that are different shapes and morphologies more interesting than a bunch of colorful sticks. It was cool when we were still trying to figure acros out. And I know they're not fully figured out. They're still a pain in the butt. But you know, back when it felt like a science project and you were getting into some uncharted territories and then some crazy guy in the Solomons starts shipping these crazy corals and then the ORA frags came out and it was this fun adventure. And now, I don't know, I don't see a lot of variety in Acropora. I do see a variety in color, but not in species anymore. And um, it's not I don't, I, for anyone struggling with uh, SPS, please don't take this as an arrogant comment, but they're not that hard anymore. You know, they're not this uh, orchid of, of, you know, the way orchids are to plants, right? I, I always struggle to keep orchids alive. They were mysterious to me, but uh, SPS, they just grow, you know, they just do their thing. Um, I don't know. How yeah, to I mean, I, I feel you there with the acros, you know, being more demanding. They take up so much more minerals. And without them, your dosing regimen is so much smaller. You know, I'm looking at, uh, you know, dosing over 200 mLs of buffer daily on two of my tanks, right? So that's just, that's just a buffer. And the calcium is right up there, magnesium similarly. Um, but the tanks are doing really well. But on that note, uh, on one of my tanks, um, my orange passion tenuous just crapped out, just crapped out out of nowhere. You know, we haven't done anything to the tank out of the ordinary, just siphon out some detritus, do a little dosing. And just one day I look in there, there was a coral that people would point out, you know, when the few visitors that, um, came to the studio would, would see it. And I'm just like scratching my head. I'm like, how did you go from being like the, the shining acro in this tank? And it was like right around the corner, corner from being a small colony to now it's like basically a skeleton with a few live branches at the base. You know, thankfully that's an isolated occurrence, but yeah, I feel you on um, the heavier toll and more demanding acros. Cause even if they're doing well, hopefully they're doing well, you got to feed them all that calcium and carbonate and magnesium and whatever else it takes to make them happy. Um, so yeah, that's okay. Yeah, I understand. You just <laughs> oh. need to find the right acro that are really like turn you on. I think, uh, when you see the hoax am I again, you'll be like, oh yeah, I need some neon blue branching staghorn in my life. Yeah. And I mean, last my summer in the past. Yeah, go ahead. Because my saying? videos in the past showing how you can graft the good part back onto the stump, you don't have to completely start over. That's true. Uh, and when I was there last summer, walking around, uh, you know, your your large shallow displays, um, your I don't know what you call them, your grow out systems or uh, what tables. Yeah, um, it, it definitely. I definitely felt that spark again, especially seeing the hoax of my. Uh, you had what looked like a Abrolo sensus or hensis, and I forget. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but just some, some of, 
wouldn't call them classic corals, uh, but just corals that I don't see online as much. And it made me think that maybe part of my disinterest is also just what I'm seeing online with SBS versus um, some of those old old school stags. And then you had some good, you know, um, big reef crest corals, you know, the the gemniferas and that humulus like that. Seeing those again, I was like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, those are cool, you know. Um, but, but yeah, it's just funny, you know, there's so many corals I haven't kept in so long. And we said this in a podcast in the past that how sometimes you just pass go and you don't keep certain things like you and I've never kept a, um, um, shoot, uh, what is the big, uh, RAS, um, Australian tusk. Yes. Thank you. Harlequin or Australian. Um, and there's just, you know, I, I, there was that, thought of man i haven't kept a trackie since you know 20 years ago you know and that that kind of stuff got me thinking about keeping I, some of those uh i types have of but like even even my best trackie you know get it to five years and then something will happen and yeah. so it's just like i see trackies i'm just like man you're a cut flower then it's not really fair to say because over five years you know you can get a lot of enjoyment but I mean, you see a lot of reef tanks. You see a lot of old reef tanks. Who's got old trackies that they're sharing and propagating? It's just not the same, at least with the acros. You can spread them out and have that strain for a very long time, right? A trackie doesn't survive super long term the way a bubble coral does, the way an elegance coral does, or fox, or, you know, any of these colonial species. And uh, so, yeah, I feel you on there. Trackie is actually the one of the few common corals I don't have here in the studio. Really? I should, now that I say that, I'm like, you know what? I should just pull the trigger and just grab a couple of token pieces here and there. And, uh, you know, none of these five, none of these $500 normal colored corals. Yeah. But uh, I just, I feel like cinerinas are such a better investment because you really have to try to lose a cinerina. You know what I mean? Yeah, and you bring up a good point. I mean, when you brought up that tenuous that crapped out on you, but when you just have that mysterious crap out happen, you have the option with a SPS to have a frag in another system or something to just re-kickstart that colony and go, hmm, I wonder what happened. Whereas when a trackie dies on you, you're, you know, you're SOL. <laughs> it's uh, it's yeah, not like yeah. you can well, spread I have that some, one out. I have know. one. Fr- go ahead. I have one frag of orange passion in another tank, but the one that crapped out, he just looked exactly like the picture. You know what I mean? Just nice multicolor, kind of orangish polyps. And it's just, it's always perplexing when a coral surrounded by related corals just craps out, right? Kind of like my maze balls that was surrounded by other Ghanis just decided, yeah, I'm not going to, nope, 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 nope. Um, but yeah, it's just like, I'm looking at this, uh, orange passion tenuous and you know, blue Millie next to it and some spatula to the other side and a couple other random acro frags and they show nothing. They show nothing. And then just this one random, uh, orange passion that's just been chilling in the same spot for, I don't know, maybe like a year and a half, almost two years just said, okay, <laughs> I'm clocking out now. And that's that, you know, that's just to be expected. It's weird and it's startling and it makes you think, oh, maybe things are wrong. Um, and, but when everything else is like thriving and growing, it's just like, not that much you can do, but on the on that note, I feel we can kind of start segueing, segueing in some of the, the things we love in the world of you know coral reefing. And I know we already did one session 
on kind of what we love about the reef aquarium hobby. Yeah. So there might be a little bit of overlap, but I'm hoping that this session will be more of a part two, you know, just to kind of keep it upbeat. And, um, you know, this kind of, to me, this kind of comes from out of a lot of the responses out of the Radeon, right? We talked about it last week. And people just don't realize how good we have it. We covered it really well in our previous session of just like, there's just no comparison between like an entry level or mid-grade LED today and like the most high-end sort of controllable metal halides that we had just 10, 12, 15 years ago. It's, they're not even in the same universe, right? As far as yeah. like uh, their impact on the aquarium hobby and so yeah i just want to talk about some things that i love that are just you'd have to you'd, you'd have to be there <laughs> when these developments yeah. came on to really appreciate where we are at now yeah i feel that some of the stuff that's really great uh is taken for taken advantage no taken for granted sorry long day um because you had to have lived through some of the um, the more DIY era of reef keeping to go, man, it is really great that we have some. And then other parts of it is just um, uh, stuff that I think you just take for granted over time because you're used to it. Um, and then someone who is an outsider can come in and say, and, you know, appreciate that aspect of your reef tank because you're used to it but they're not you know um you live in colorado when i when i moved to boulder to go to college i remember sitting at the little bus they have these little small buses that take you to campus and looking at the the foothills the flat irons and just being like wow you know every day and then you know six months later you're not even staring at him anymore you know you're just they're there yep you know you take them for granted. Um, and I definitely think there's that aspect in the hobby too sometimes where um, you get used to the fact that there's a coral, not a coral reef, but a reef-like mini habitat in a glass box, you know, existing in your house, you know. And then your neighbor drops by for, you know, a tool or something they need to borrow. And they're like, holy crap. And then you're like, oh, yeah, it is pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty wild. <laughs> what is the science experiment that you have here? Is that real? Yeah. Are those things alive? alive? Are those rocks alive? Mm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's pretty. Uh, it's pretty cool. Then you're. Then you have a little moment of pride and and enjoyment for something that you've created. You know. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm just going to start off super simple and say I am so thankful for super glue. <laughs> yeah. Just super glue itself do you know how hard it would be to propagate corals without it right you know like steve chang back in the day before um garf popularized using super glue in a reef in a saltwater environment we were you know you'd frag a coral and then you have to mix up some epoxy and build this whole little collar around it that would obviously shrink because it was like not today's epoxy and just hope that it held onto the coral enough that eventually it would you know cure it would uh, uh encrust and there was always a little bit of dieback from the old school epoxy from the chemical reaction or whatever you know what i'm talking about right mm -hmm. oh yeah the uh, dieback and so just the way we can pump corals onto another surface using this magical gel oh my god dude this hobby would suck without it someone would have to invent it 
Someone would have to figure out, you know, imagine if superglue was just somehow randomly toxic in saltwater environment you, or just simply did not cure around water. Like we'd be screwed. We'd be totally screwed. This obby would just be radically different. And we haven't always had superglue at our disposal, right? I think it was late 90s. You know, it was, I think, first introduced in 95, 96, 97, Marine Fish Monthly, uh, you know, GARF, Geothermal Aquaculture Research Foundation. I'm like, hey, we just uh, we just take superglue and glue stuff, to, you know, glue corals to, to, to things. And everybody's like, what? What? You know, so we take this for granted. Now, but not only do we have superglue, we have superglue gel. Yeah, you know, and, and gel this is a special a version changer. of cyanoacrylate. That was... And I just... I remember a day when we didn't have that. We didn't have that. And it's just one of those things that makes the hobby almost possible, right? If we had to, I don't know, if you had to get a coral to encross onto another thing without being able to just hack, hack, hack and glue it onto something. Oh, my God. Coral frags, they'd just be like 10% of the frags that they're out there or, or much, much less. And and casual aquarists would just not be doing it. So I'm I'm super thankful for superglue. I think you sent me home with my first uh, my first super glue attempt, uh, and it was the Bob Mankin corals. You guys had gotten a shipment in, and you sent me home with a frag and an actual tube, yeah, tube of super glue. And up, but until that point, I was just using the two part epoxy. Um, and uh, and then what was interesting about that is then you know my Google brain started going. And reading up on it and learning that it was actually invented to, as a liquid suture during, I believe, World War II, which then that totally revolutionized my camping game, you know? So I remember even in the early 2000s going camping with my buddies and, you know, you get a cut on your finger and it's like, forget band-aids, man, just put some super glue on it. And that was before, you know, liquid bandages and all that was popularized. And everyone thought, you know, because it smells so toxic uh or chemically pungent you know so the idea of putting that into your bloodstream seemed like a really bad idea but um but yeah it was uh that that is a miracle product all all the way around <laughs> so and the gel to and your that, point kids yeah. is why it's important to learn your history right because <laughs> right? if you didn't know that super glue was developed as a suture you wouldn't know that it's like just completely non-toxic it doesn't you know flow into anything it just stays into its own clump um so yeah i know that's a little obvious one a little easy one but um i know some of the uh older timers listening or watching will uh appreciate that i am so thankful for propeller pumps i you know developed a whole gyre flow concept because we were only using power heads we only had jets and i was trying to figure out a way to make all the water move at once and at the time i was going to school for marine science and just you know was taking these courses in oceanography and learned about gyres i'm like all right well i guess i can call it gyre flow and it sounded so dumb it sounded so dumb for a long time um to use gyre as a word but now it's like you know, common in the reef aquarium uh, vocabulary, basically. But now that we have propeller pumps, people don't even have to think about creating true gyre flow and moving all the water in their tanks instead of creating little jets that shoot at whatever coral you want to use or, you know, using a, a wavy seas or a sea swirl to, you know, move the flow back and forth, right? So now that we have propeller pumps, it's just not, it's a non-issue. 
getting good flow in smaller tanks is just a non-starter. You add, you know, any kind of propeller pump, even the cheapest one, doesn't have to have any features. Doesn't need to be controllable, right? You can kind of adjust its performance based on its placement and its the direction that it's that it's moving. But man, I know you were there when the first uh, little giant pump kits uh, came out where you could modify a little giant, you know, uh, submersible pond pump and add this propeller to it, put it into an acrylic case and hang it off the side of your tank. It costs as much as the the pump itself. And then it was just like shortly after the Tunesy Streams came out and it just totally revolutionized how we move water. And, uh, yeah. you know, now we have our Vortex and our CJs and our Neros. And now I got my hands on an Abyss Flow Cannon, um, you know, $2,000 machine that will practically propel a boat around and i'm like man this is incredible it's just it's it's astounding how far we've come how, what we yes it used to put up with and you got people complaining that oh my god this light's been up refreshed you know two and a half three years after it first came out i'm like oh my god could you imagine trying to diy every part of what we're trying to do right now it there were just the hobby would be a fraction of as, as big as it is now which means much fewer corals, which means also um, much more affordable coral because <laughs> there's so many people that want them. Yeah, I remember the MaxiJet kits. Um, oh, no, I mean, your propeller point was great because uh, what did we had? You know, we had MaxiJet pumps. We had um, some of the, I mean, some people spent money on the Tunzis that were powerheads where the motor was above the water. Um, I remember some Chinese knockoffs of those, but it was the propeller game. The top-mounted pump where the motor yeah. was on the outside and the best version you could get had two outlets, right? So it was one spindle that came down and you can actually rotate the outlets different direction and it would spin two impellers at the same time. Damn, I need to find one of those and add it to the museum uh, because, God, I haven't seen one of those in forever. It's got to be wasting away in a warehouse somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, no, that oh, yeah, was, was, uh, was that was huge, and then uh, yeah, it was the the Tunzi um, streams were the first ones, right? Uh, those big yeah. little cube looking things. Um, I think I still have those somewhere. Um, and they were big. They, you, like you said, they were really big honkers. Yeah, and they moved a decent amount of flow, but nothing like what we have today. Forget controllability, right? You're just happy to have the propeller go inside the tank, and you didn't have to build the kit yourself. Um, but yeah, that was just like revolutionary. I, for me, I guess uh, we could probably. Yeah. What? What are you saying? I was saying we could probably retitle this this session. Uh, you know, things we're thankful for in the aquarium yeah. hobby because we had the one of the things we love, and these are the things I'm thankful for. Uh, one of mine started with, um, I was going to say DC pumps, but then that got me more thinking bigger on the scale of just how much quieter reef tanks have become overall, um, because of a multitude oh of factors. God. It, you know, one, our lighting doesn't need to be actively cooled with crazy CFM fans, right? The way halides were. Two, we went from AC pumps to DC pumps for a lot of um, applications. Uh, the Durso overflow was loud. I mean, yeah, it reduced bubbles in your um, sump that reduced some noise, but Dursos were still loud compared to continuous siphon overflows. That's a good one. So um, I want—I just want you know, 
like even if you've been reefing for like 10 or 12 years, right? You just have to transport yourself back to a time when we didn't have continuous siphon overflow. We didn't have bean animals. We, you know, we're just trying to reduce like the gurgling a little bit and the Stockman mod and the Dursa overflow was something that came out of Reef Central that reduced it somewhat, but it still had that gurgle gurgle in your sump. And it's funny because I had the efficiency of LED lighting and DC pumps as one of the things I'm thankful for. But you're right. The noise, yeah. like even the quietest Iwaki plus whatever pumps you had running and your skimmer, you know, hissing and puffing and even like the hum of your uh, metal halide ballast, all that together, man, you, if, you know, you, a 15, 20 year old reef tank, you stood next to it. You knew you were standing next to something was going on and I can go next to my reef tanks now. I don't even know that there's anything there. Yeah, they, you know, some of them can be so quiet and silent. You're just like, unless you put your, you know, your cheekbone and your jawbone next to the glass and hear the vibration, um, they they can be so silent. It used to be a real sticking point between spouses is how loud the reef tank would be. Yeah, my wife was used to it. You know, we lived in an apartment with all of that loud noise. Uh, and then we lived in a house where I didn't have a basement. And when we bought this house 13 years ago, I remember seeing the room where I would put my tank. And I remember seeing that there was an unfinished space below it. And I was thinking, okay, I'd already gone to uh, a passively cooled aquamedic metal halide fixture. So no more fans, right? But the next evolution was, oh, if we buy this house, I can put my sump in the basement and then just have a big AC pump, you know, a blue line to pump it back up a story. And that way, all the noise will be in the basement. And I was so excited about the noise reduction. And then the technology has improved so vastly that when it came to putting a tank back upstairs, uh, or sorry, when I replaced that with a 225 gallon tank, I put the sump back in the stand because for me, the electrical savings of not having a massive pump, pump my water back up a uh, story was uh, worth it. And I knew that I could have a quiet tank, right? I knew I could have everything inside that stand and have it be quiet again. And so it wasn't worth like having this massive sump in the basement. Um, but it's just crazy that moving into this house, that was the factor. It was like, oh, I can move my sump to a part of the house where nobody has to listen to it. And then it didn't matter in the end anymore. So that to me was uh, something that I was really thankful for. Um, and that, you know, that's a, that's a multifaceted thing, right? That's your DC pumps. That's your, that is the lack of needing loud fans. And yeah, so, and whoever can, you know, I don't yeah, know. If along was, those same lines, I had. Was that? Oh, no, I was going to say, I don't know if it was Herbie or Bean that came first, but, you know, <laughs> thank you to both of them. So, um, Yeah, I mean, along those same lines, just the efficiency of DC-powered equipment. Um, you know, these days you can add a four to six foot tank to your, your, your electricity bill and only see like a 10 to $20 a month increase, whereas there was a time where you didn't have to just factor in the cost of, you know, your, your chemicals and your, your salt mix and whatever animals you were going to add to your reef tank. But, you know, you could be into it for 
50 to 100 to 200 dollars a month if you're running a ton of halides plus a chiller right? yeah we have it so good now it's just incredible if i had to use like classic equipment at the studio i would have a quarter of the tanks i would have just done like four big tanks and been done with it you know and all that um improvement in the technology has enabled um nano aquariums right one of the reasons we didn't do nano aquariums is because you know you're still looking at a hundred to 200 watts of fluorescent lighting or you know a really hot like 75 watt micro metal halide lamp and that's that was your only options or power yeah. compacts which was also very hot and expensive um but yeah the the efficiency of dcs dc equipment and I guess you could say, you know, LEDs are also DC. The only thing that's not DC uh, is your heater, right? That's still AC. Um, but it's just a radical improvement in the technology. And it's just led to just much lower operating cost and much lower noise level and much better spouse approval factor. Yeah. That's, that's a really big one. I'm glad you mentioned that one. Yeah, that's... Uh, so another one that I had um, is the high clarity glass. Yeah. I, you know, uh, there was a time when Oceanic was promoting some of their low iron glass, but it wasn't as high clarity as today. But there was, you know, if you were to use a tank from ten to twenty years ago, they were dark there was a there was a layer there there you could definitely see it even when your glass was super clean and your water was super clear and it's just when your glass is clean today inside and out and your water's clear it just looks like your corals and your fish are just floating in midair it's really uh striking it, it and it's one of those things you don't really see in pictures but in person you're just like whoa <coughs> I know, I know how you feel about that you know, yeah. softer, low iron glass. I think all of the reef therapy patients are familiar with it <laughs> I, as yeah. well. I don't need to repeat um, myself. It's a, it's a fair one. But, you know, I got a little stack of like UNS rimless glass aquariums right here. And now, you know, even mid-grade tanks are coming with that uh, high clarity glass. And I feel like it just, it's something you can take for granted super easily because if you haven't dealt with old school, high iron, very hard, hard to scratch aquariums, um, it's just, it really adds to the overall presentation of the aquarium. There's not much more to say about it other than I like it. Well, and the, there's the showcase factor, I think, because, um, the tanks that we had our at our disposal, uh, you know, without going custom, I would say the nicest looking aquariums were Oceanics, and even their stands were nothing to shout home about. The tanks had a plastic trim. Um, it's just to me, it's amazing how how attractive aquariums have become, but also the whole concept of out-of-the-box reef keeping. I mean, the lack, I mentioned earlier, the DIY era. Um, there's just no need. There's no need to do that. And I know we've talked about that in the past, but it is just amazing because you used to be this, if you're a reef keeper, you were building, it was, it was like the guy who built the rocket ship on the farm. Who, what movie was that? You know, where <laughs> it was like, you're building a reef tank with equipment, with tanks and um, made by tank manufacturers who only cared about the freshwater 
side of the hobby, you know? Get reef ready was about as far as they went, you know, putting an overflow box in the tank. And now these tanks are are gorgeous, man. It's um sometimes I f- I get excited about the prospect of a new tank and its new dimensions that I want to set one up, and then I have no idea what I would do with it. But the tank itself makes me want to set up a reef, whereas usually the tank itself was like the worst part of it. It was like, no, 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 don't look at all that. Look inside the tank, you know. So um, kudos to that. Yeah, no, we we used to have to figure out so much of this. You pick out your tank, you pick out your stand, your hang on the back overflow box with these YouTubes, and then your plumbing. And uh, yeah, you're right. The whole um, nearly uh, almost plug and play experience because in most climates, you still need a heater. And so I still kind of bristle when manufacturers said, uh, you know, an all-in-one aquarium has everything that they need, but it doesn't have a real top off and it doesn't have like a lid or something to keep the fish from jumping out. And it almost never includes a heater. But besides those couple things, um, yeah, this is, there's, this is an, an age that is unique to these times when you really had to piece everything together and you had to ask about a specific sump and a specific stand and how to get the water down and how to get the water back. And especially for, for newcomers to the aquarium hobby, um, you know, grabbing an all-in-one tank or a, a real reef-ready aquarium with all the plumbing, you know, the Cade uh, comes to mind as an exemplary example of just everything is pre-cut, you know, auto top-off float valve that you can plug into something else. Um, water box and Red Sea are right there with them. Um, it's just you really take that for granted how much mental bandwidth we used to have to spend on every single detail, right? Well, and just going back to that high-clarity glass, that used to be an option, yeah. Right. Now you kind of have to ask like you did to not have high clarity glass. Like I'm, I'm wondering if your tank is basically made out of bottoms, right? <laughs> Where they just had like this high iron glass only used for the bottom of the aquarium. They're like, this guy wants a low clarity glass tank. All right. I guess we're going to just take all these panes that were, you know, earmarked for the bottom of the aquarium and we're going to build the whole thing with it. Well, customer's always right. We'll just do what he wants. I, I was worried they were going to send high high qual, high clarity glass anyway and just not charge me because it just would be easier for them because they probably had all that glass pre-cut, you know, templates and all that. Um, but the other funny thing about tanks back then was, you know, today we always advocate, you know, get an 18-inch wide tank or 24-inch wide, and I mean depth, front to back tank because it's uh it's it, you can do more aquascaping with it than a 12 inch deep tank you know um so you know people would always say don't get the 55 get the 75 right but the other reason we used to say that was because a 12 inch wide tank you could not fit any type of aquarium into the stand to act as a sump right because if the tank's 12 inches and then the stand is usually less wide than the tank you you literally couldn't find something that would fit. And so there was always that advocating of getting an 18-inch wide or 24-inch wide tank so that you could fit a 12-inch wide tank or 18-inch, you know, like a 40 breeder underneath. Um, and that's the kind of crap we you used to have to think about. Now you get a sump with the tank, you know, <laughs> and you're, you're uh, 
you're modding it. You're, you're if you don't like the, you know, every the, it's there's nothing wrong with it. But you're gonna, you know, I I modded mine, right? So um, that's just uh, something that I'm I'm thankful for. It. We said it in the past. The focus now is on the reef keeping, not on the DIY skills, right? So it's a it's a good yeah. thing. No, absolutely. I remember a time where I was starting to get a little bored with the reef aquarium hobby. You know, I had grown out a bunch of different fish and a bunch of different corals and LEDs were just seemed like they were on the horizon and just they, they seemed like a faraway technology and I will never forget my first entry level strip of blue LEDs. It was incredible, you know, because for years, these colors that we had looked at that I always called like imaginary colors under blue radiums or blue plus T5s or blue power compacts or actinic VHOs, you know, the colors were there, but they weren't as crisp as even the av most average blue LED light. It was like going from pastel to neon just absolutely i still have that strip and i will never let it go because it really reinvigorated me and i still remember and i don't think it was about 2011 i had a powwow with the staff at reef builders i'm like we're going to be writing about leds this whole year and i think if you look at stories from 2011 any given day we would write four to five stories and three or more of them would be about a new led light Right. And so you just, you know, in our, my in three previous videos, I'm like dissecting one fixture for its different merits and violets and ultraviolet lights and more of the blue and more of the royal blue. We didn't even have that vocabulary. Right. But the first shitty blue LED light that I threw over a tank, I was like, oh, my God. You know, after like 10 to 15 years of looking at colorful but more pastel looking corals when you finally see those corals those colors in the corals just turned up just turned it was just astounding right the best uh, the best vho t5 halide just doesn't quite have the crispness and that that saturation that pure fluorescence excitation of even the most average led Right. You can take an off brand, off bin um, LED and put it in a fixture and you're like, oh, my God, look at the actual colors. And now we have the leisure of comparing different types of blues, different types of royal blues. And then further on in the indigo and the violet and the ultraviolet. And God, you just man, I, I wish, you know, I wish there was a, some kind of challenge we could put together of like you know, encouraging uh, newer reefers who are really, really passionate to set up an old cool tank, old school tank with only T5s. Because then when you only have T5s, you're like, okay, I see the colors and they're, they're there and they're, they're kind of nice, but just nothing brings out um, that fluorescence like the, the LEDs. You're right. That excitation peak, the emission peak of the LED can perfectly line up with the excitation peak of the pigments in the corals. And it's just one of those things like you have to, you'd have to be there to really appreciate how awesome LEDs are. You know, we always thought LEDs, when LEDs were an idea, 
were like, we knew that they were efficient. And obviously, over the last 12 years, they their efficiency has shattered all expectations. But it's the color that you just don't realize how much we're getting uh, these days. Yeah, and um, I was thinking about the whole G6 and uh, some of the videos you made on them. And it brought me back to my first LED experience where unbeknownst to me, I had extremely hot pockets of intensity and then right next door was no intensity, right? So I had areas that maybe were not enough intensity to, to you know, get the kind of coloration that I was hoping for. And then right next door, you could see a coral just getting pale. And I had a hell of a time. Are you talking about the Maseras? Yeah, I mean, they were they were good lights, and I, I did as much as I could with them, but eventually I had to add, um, build my LED, was that what they were called, those bars? Mm-hmm. And that yes, was sir. me, yep. and I put them on an angle, 45-degree angle, and that was my backfill, right? That was my, um, what do you call this new light? You've got point source, and then you've got um, um, diffuse. Fill light, fill, yeah. fill light's pretty yeah. good, secondary light. And then I started to have more success with them. But then again, that was such experimentation versus now you look at these um, more diffuse LED fixtures like the G6 and they're getting more idiot proof. You know, there's still too many bars like you can people there's there's a lot to tweak, which is fun for people that know what they're doing. But if you're just getting into this hobby, it might feel a little bit overwhelming. Um but that said, um, there's not this whole like, well, if you put the coral two inches to the left, you're going to burn it. And if you move it two inches this direction, it's not going to get enough light. Like it, there's, It's just amazing how much within that space beyond just the phosphorescent glow, the, the technology has progressed as well, right? Like they're, they're a lot more idiot proof, I think, today than they were. Um, and halides an weren't idiot proof either, right? <laughs> so, yeah. That's an excellent point because I don't think modern reefers who've been paying attention for, I don't know, last five years understand the challenges that we had with the first generations of LEDs where the manufacturer was, were, they were using lenses to really focus as much as that light and capture that light and send it downwards. But I remember a plenty of reef tanks that were striped. There was literally an area of very high light um, under the light, and that's where you'd put your acros, and in between you'd put, you know, your chalices or montes or soft corals or LPS, right? I, I still remember the first reef tank that I saw that was grown. It was, uh, uh, I think his name's James Chow. I haven't seen him in a long time, but he was in New York, and this is a, you know, winding back clock like ten to twelve years, and he had a tank that was grown fully from LEDs, and it was. At, totally striped, right? Acros underneath the light and other corals on the sides. And so that's where this this constant, um, uh, I guess, improvement, you can say, to the uh, uniform homogenous light field is still coming from. Although I think the Radeon G6 is like, all right, we've reached peak, you know, spread. And, you know, for the next generation, I don't even know what they're going to do for the next generation, right? They've got the spread. They've got the color. They've got the controllability. They've got all the power in one. Like, um, but yeah, I think there's not too many more gains to be had on the diffusion 
side of, of the LED. Do you remember uh, MaxBack came out with uh, larger fixtures that had uh, multi-chip LEDs and then they also had the fill LEDs. This was like a long time ago. Um, Actually, it wasn't that long ago. This was like four or five years ago. It was the MaxBack recurve. Is that it what it was? It was basically a razor with built-in – yeah, it was a razor. No. It was a, it was a MaxBack razor. Yeah, go ahead. I know, I know that light. It was before then even. It was uh, It was like a multi-chip There was daylight. other companies that came out with – It wasn't MaxBack? There was other companies that came out with fixtures that had T5s on the side. And they were a great hybrid. And that was a, that was a surprising thing. I really thought we would see T5 fixtures with a little bit of LED. And then LED would grow as needed. And it wasn't until like everybody went all in on LED and started missing some of that fill light. Because some people don't like the shadows. Some people don't like the shimmer. And they want to diffuse that or to soften it with some supplemental lights. Yeah, I mean, I remember I GHL had the had the LEDs with the supplemental T5s. Um, I I would love to see more of that, but I understand that that's not a great market when you're talking about you know building a 12 inch, 24 inch, 36, 48, 72. You know, that gets to be a, a pain in terms of uh, manufacturing, I imagine. But basically give me my metal halide with actinic supplementation, but have it all be LED, right? Have something like an A500X as your point source and then supplement it. But um, that would be cool. I mean, you can build that yourself for, you know, with, with, uh, with some light LED, LED light bars and all that. But I want to say max spec tried something like that, but I'll have to Google it. I don't know. Um, I right along those same lines. I am incredibly thankful for needle wheel protein skimmers. I remember a day where you just had to put it on your maintenance list to clean out the Venturi that was feeding your protein skimmer because, you know, you had the Aquasi, which are, you know, high speed aeration, Beckett's and, and uh, ETS's with just uh, t- used a ton of power and they were loud right? Uh, because of the crashing water inside the tubes. Um, but the needle wheels, that wasn't, that was not an obvious thing that was going to happen, right? That was a patent by Deltec and DAS, Dutch Aquarium Systems. They had a couple models. And I think the first really widely available one was the Aquamatic Turbo Floater. But all our protein scammers now don't need a wheel. Very, very few of them are uh, a downdraft style or a uh, venturi style um outside of very specific applications and like i said like you know just the the, the technique and the technology to make a needle wheel uh, impeller that wasn't going to tear up the pump um that was not obvious it wasn't clear that that was the future we were headed for leds that was kind of clear we're going to go that way because it was very low energy um but the, the needle wheel pumps, um, needle wheel skimmers, that just transformed how much a protein skimmer can produce in terms of foam, how easy it is to operate. Um, you know, you got a, a few straggler manufacturers that rail against needle wheel, but they've never really used them. They think that, you know, the pump and the needle wheel are somehow Life-free. tied together to the skimmer. I'm just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just, just to add a needle wheels, you know, 
pump to your skimmer, you'll be good. You know what I should do? Not that you mentioned that. I should take a life-free protein skimmer and add a needle wheel pump to it. Jeff Turchek is 10 minutes down the road, and that would be so funny. He would hate it. He would hate me forever. <laughs> in, in 2002, he sent me like, I, I don't know how many pages. Let's just say it was like a two-page email about why needle wheels suck. <laughs> because I, I guess on one of the forums, I was just commenting about, you know, somebody was asking about a life reef skimmer. And I was like, yeah, you know, I would, I would look at like a Euro reef skimmer or something like that. Um, and I, I appreciated his passion, but I, you know, 20 years later, I, I'm probably getting my dates wrong, but I, I feel like the dust has settled on that topic. <laughs> you know, not that I don't love yeah, a good venture so. skimmer, was... but you know, yeah. <laughs> so. Um, there is a scale and there's an application at which it makes sense to use some of these other technologies, although my recreations has created more and larger protein skimmers using needle wheels than, you know, high powered motor fed by a high powered motor. And man, the foam, the froth that they produce is just, it's hard to touch it. It's hard to touch it. You know, the only thing you can say is that some of those larger motors do not like having uh, a needle wheel impeller. You know, it causes uh, different uh, uh, physics to happen inside of the pump. Um, but yeah, there was a time where uh, needle wheel protein skimmers were not necessarily obvious. And now every protein skimmer here in the studio, um, I think I have 10 protein skimmers running. They're all needle wheel. And it's just that's a given. That's the standard. And yeah, it's going to be really hard to take that to the next level. I can't even think of another technology that could challenge it in the immediate or long-term future. I, I will say, I would love it. The most consistent skimmer I ever had was uh, Geo uh, George Weber. Back when he was uh, still doing a lot of cool DIY projects and stuff, um, he made me a needle wheel skimmer. And um, the skimmer cup had a very narrow volume. Is that the term? Um, mm -hmm. And what was great about it is that, and I true, I'm not a skimmer designer guy, so I'm probably getting all this wrong. But all of these wide volutes, they do gunk up pretty easy, right? And then they start to drastically drop in skimmate production. And what was interesting about this thing was it wasn't milky white, but I, I think because the volume was so narrow that the velocity of air and bubbles going through it, it almost was not self-cleaning, but it stayed cleaner for longer because it really just shoved all the dirt up over into the cup very quickly. So there wasn't as much opportunity for gunk to build up on the inner walls of that volume. That skimmer just ran forever. And I remember it was running on a Mag 7 with a was it a Mazzy? Is that the term? Venturi brand? Was oh, it? the Mazzy Venturi. Yeah. The, the injector to rule them all. I forgot about that one. I, I forgot about it, but I know that I have a couple. <laughs> I have a red one and a black one. Um, but yeah, that was that was like your only point of improvement. Even on a life-free protein skimmer, right? You had this homemade uh, Venturi thing. But if you wanted to upgrade, you'd add the Mazzy Venturi because it was well-designed with fluid dynamics and stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that's another thing that just has made reefing so much easier these days. Yeah, I I I, I know you have a couple that you want to get to. Um, yeah. So I'll let you pick pick the next one. I mean, this one will probably uh, 
you won't like it, but um, the scale of automation that's available today and the whole cloud connected side of things, um, I have so much more peace of mind, you know, leaving my tank unattended for large stretches. And the fact that, um, knock on wood, I don't even use a fish sitter. You know, like nobody comes and checks on my tanks. Um, I do have friends that I can call if I see something that's gone wrong on the webcam or via the apex. Um, but even just... Let me stop uh, you right there. Yeah. Let me stop you right there because you said on the webcam, see things on the webcam, right? So I have cloud-connected pH meters and other sensors and they inform and instruct what I'm already doing, but nothing is better than that webcam, right? Right. You, you see some values are off from your Trident or your tester or your whatever, uh, you know, whatever chemistry is happening. Then you fire up your webcam and look at the tank and, you know, double check what's going on because you can never trust, you know, some of the probes like your salinity meter and some of these newfangled uh, water testers, they're not bulletproof, right? No. So yeah. your real um, determination of what's going on in your tank when you're not there is the webcam. Yeah, but I mean, the ability to, if it detects a leak, turn off certain things and then send you a notification, at which point I could call a friend, right? Um, that's really great. And then uh, I know you prefer to call it uh, automated water exchange, but I'll just call it AWC because that's what everybody knows it. That's so great. That's so, I mean, I was anti-water change. I'd go a year without a water change, but now I just don't have an excuse. And I love the fact that I can mix up a batch while I'm on a conference call. And then, you know, a few hours later, I just push a button, you know, once it's nice and... But see, that's the caveat, yeah. right? So the automatic water changes is like a semi-automatic. Yeah. Because if, if you really care about your reef tank, you're not going to do that while you're on vacation. No, have but, you ever done a water change while you're gone? No, but what if no, you, but you what haven't if you done a water had, change while you're gone? So it's like semi-automatic. What if your clam spawned, right? What, what if, if you had too much calquaser? Like, what if you have too much calquaser? What if your clam spawned? Yeah, okay, all right. Push a button while you're sitting by the pool. To press a couple buttons and uh, and then just you know keep an eye out on the webcam and you know give your fish some much, you know, give them the air as they say in a Total Recall, you know, like. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's pretty it's nice to air. have that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I no, that, that's that's also super cool. I like that stuff. I like the fact that I I'm not against. You know, I was gonna say I can be in a different time zone and just turn my lights on so that I can see on the webcam what the hell's going on. Right? Like that's pretty cool. Just little stuff like that. Again, you take the little. I'm not against automation. No, I know. I just like to. I like don't to try you on into that. being against automation. Oh, I just, I have a t-shirt from <laughs> no, you like that says, I am the controller, really so I just bank. laugh, you know. I, I know you're not against it in any way, but you, um, but uh, yeah. But you are the controller. But you are the controller because you talked about checking out your reef tank on your webcam and double checking that, you know, visually everything is happening. And uh, no, I guess that's cool, you know, for people who are really busy. No, and I'm with but, you. Um, I'm with you, right? Because I would never trust... Uh, a Neptune um, Trident to dose my reef tank and tell me how much, you know, part A, part B I should add, right? Uh, that's getting into a level that I don't trust, right? So I, I'm, I get you on that. So 
But that level of automation would not really be as possible without peristaltic pumps. Yeah. That's another one that was non-obvious. I remember if you wanted a peristaltic pump, you had an option of like this really chintzy plastic box that always failed or a refurbished medical unit that could cost upwards of like $600 for a single channel. There was that one company a long time ago that was refurbishing medical mm -hmm. peristaltic pumps specifically for the aquarium hobby. And they were selling those at like three to $400 for a single unit. And it was like, you know, it's, it was, it was kind of a big box, um, big beige box. And nowadays it's like, I'm, I'm struggling to think of a manufacturer that doesn't have a peristaltic pump on the market, right? Neptune Systems got theirs. Ecotech Marine has theirs. Seachem has one as well. Um, and it's just one of those things we take for granted, but you got, you got tiny ones, you got large ones, you got continuous dosing versions, you got maxi versions for the water changes that a lot of other people use. And they have some quirks, you know, as far as programming and calibrating and keeping that tube, uh, you know, a little bit on the newer side. So it's not all depressed. But some of that automation, especially on the dosing side, oh my goodness, I have no idea what I'd do without them right now. If I didn't mm. have peristaltic pumps, I'd have to have calcium reactors on every single thing, which I have a couple going on. But man, peristaltic dosing is just like a godsend. That is one of those automations that is just priceless to the brief aquarium hobby. You take away peristaltic dosing today and everybody's reef tank is dramatically different. At least their experiences. I remember getting the medical pumps off eBay because they were the cheapest options. There was the Vario dosing pump, that banana yellow one from Germany. Um, I couldn't mm -hmm. afford that I back in the day. Um, I couldn't afford I have one. Uh, a Spectra Pure back then. So I would get those medical ones. And then uh, I did buy a used Spectra Pure, and that thing was a godsend. And I remember it fell into a batch of caulkwasser and I was devastated because I was broke back then. And I called them up and they were like, yeah, just soak it in uh, RODI water for uh, you know a little bit and then dry it out and you'll be fine. And it came back to life and I used that thing for like another 10 years. But I tried, when I started getting into two parts, the cheapest option at the time I think was Bulk Reef Supply had some of those cheaper options, but they had plastic gears inside that would wear out. Um so, yeah, when you want to talk to me about just the massive increase in quality and availability of dosing pumps, there's a reason that my calcium reactor is still on a shelf. I just, in my opinion, two-part dosing has reached a level of peak existence with these dosing pumps and, and the variety of um, two-part solutions. Now you've got one-part solutions that... Um, in my humble opinion, for me, a, a calcium reactor doesn't make sense. And somebody could come and argue to me that, you know, in a heavy SBS tank, it's not cost effective. But we're in a hobby where corals are going for $2,000, $3,000, and people don't even blink when they spend $100 on a two millimeter frag. So I never understand the argument of like, well, you know, calcium reactor is way more cost effective. But it's also a pain in the butt to go get my CO2 tank refilled. Uh, and I have had a calcium reactor plug on me, you know, and I know now you're using continuous peristaltic pumps to dose versus using a needle valve on the 
uh, effluent that could clog. I know that you know there's been some evolutions in the whole implementation, but dosing pumps are relatively speaking bomb proof as long as you keep up on maintenance. You know, so yeah. Do you remember what dosing used to be like? Yeah. <laughs> so I have a, a variety of famas right here from the 1990s. And you could get it. You, could, um, I think uh, ESV offered these. They were sealed containers. Oh yeah. And you used an air pump. Yeah. To pump air into a sealed chamber, which would then force out some fluid. Right. So you used. You have to use an air pump for your dosing, and then somehow figure out the actual volume that was coming out. Plug that into a. Um, mechanical appliance timer. Oh my goodness. And those were selling for, you know, a hundred dollars. Now you can get a single channel Camware dosing pump with wireless capability, connect to your app, tell it exactly how much you want to dose. You can go into those for as literally as like $60, but that's what dosing used to be, you know, unless you were doing it manually, you know, once or throughout the week. Uh, once a week or throughout the week, um, you had an air pump that came on a timer that pumped into a vessel that was sealed and, uh, you know, the fluid would be displaced from the air. And I'm like, I think Life Reef have made some some things like that. Yeah. And uh, goodness gracious, that was the most because as the air compressed it, you know, as the vessel filled up it was there was more compression so the more air you pumped into it the less dosing that you actually got out of it i never used one of those that was a little bit before my time but it's just fascinating to see what reefers did um to get their automatic dosing on right and then this entire conversation we're talking about things we're thankful for today i can't imagine what a reef therapy session might be like 10 years from now Right? Are we going to come out with some new, you know, spools of uh, OLED fabric that you just somehow just put on the top of your tank? You plug them in, and it's just completely diffused light across end to end. Right? Like the background. Like I've been daydreaming about this future aquarium setup all, basically all my life, and I'm thinking in the future, you know, you might cut a, a sheet of OLED to put over your tank, the same way we used to put a background on the back. Mm -hmm. Right. You just cut it to size, plug it in. And that doesn't seem like it's on the horizon because no one's working on that. Although we're seeing a lot more uh, like display panels for our phones, monitors and TVs go to micro LED, which are just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. I imagine one day we'll just be able to cut that to size, plug in a couple of wires and the whole tank's lit up. Probably no shimmer, though. Probably no, sh probably no shimmer with that one. Yeah. Yeah, the the whole so internet cloud connectivity has, I think, in a sense, been a game changer as well, right? It It's changed how we control our lights, how we program them. You just talked about dosers. We used to calibrate them with a timer, a lamp timer, and be like, oh, do I run it for 10 seconds or do I run it for a minute? And, and, and you know, you'd use that to calibrate how much it dosed. And now... You calibrated it in an app, and now I can just say, hey, dose an extra. You know, if, if my ALK went down, I can correct it a bit with the app. So just that alone, just how we interact with our aquarium equipment has completely changed, and it's opened so many doors. Um, I, I, You know, dosing pumps one wouldn't thing I be want where they were without it, right? So 
one thing I want everybody to realize, like every new cutting, bleeding edge piece of technology, you know, five, 10 years down the road, that's going to be standard issue, right? Just having these multi-channel, controllable, wireless, you know, cloud connected apps for your pumps, your dosers, your lights, that's going to be so standard. We might see those in the all-in-one tanks where they actually offer, you know, the heater and the glass top as well as the dosing pumps or whatever you need to absolutely become plug and play. That's that's super exciting. I, I not to be a Debbie Downer because I love my Neptune Apex, but I think there'll be a point where you can't charge five, six hundred dollars for a controller anymore, right? Because the only thing that controller offers you is a single pane of glass. But now $20 light bulbs come with iPhone apps, right? To control and program them, right? I put in these LED light strips to put under my daughter's bed because she wanted her room to glow. 30 bucks, right? Now I my CJ pump has an app, right? So what when everything comes with an app, how do you charge $600, right? I mean, the, the, there's definitely the automation and the integration of if you have everything in a single pane of glass, then you can, this event from this thing can impact a decision on this piece of hardware, right? And so, that you, but is that worth $600 a few years from now? I don't think so. No, you're totally right. I was at the hardware store yesterday grabbing a few things I need to install some new lights. And uh, I saw a plug that had a switch on it, right? It was just a plug with a mechanical switch on it. It was like $6.99. And I'm looking at this thing and I'm kind of laughing because I've been using the Maras plugs. Yeah. And I get them four for $20. Maybe it's like four for 22 now with, you know, all the increase in prices of stuff. And um, I get those for $5 with wireless control, radio, and there's a button on it to turn into a switch. So I have a couple Maras plugs that I use simply as a switch. They're not even programmed. They're $5. How the hell is that cheaper than the hardware switch at Home Depot for $7? It's it's incredible how far we've come. And uh, man, I'm trying to, I'm like struggling to think. We talked about lighting, flow, skimmers, dosing. I think, you know, the water testers probably have a lot of room for improvement, you know, yeah. some, some real actual technology, because right now, the status quo is providing these um, little pieces of equipment and devices that function like a robot, right? It just tests your water for you the same way that we did for decades before. But, you know, for those of you that will recall the now defunct Mindstream, which had um, mm. chemically sensitive, uh, they called them, they called them foils. Um, you know, the CCAM ammo alert has been around for a long time, right? The ammo alert is just a, a, a piece of material that's sensitive to ammonia and changes color with it. And you can look at it and it'll tell you um, what your ammonia level is, you know, whether they're safe or harmful or toxic or danger. And imagine applying that to your calcium, your magnesium, your alkalinity, your pH, and then having that be read with the sensors that, you know, that's what Mindstream was trying to do. Although the company went defunct, the technology still exists, 
right? And each company, because they didn't make the foils, first of all. Yeah. A lot of people might not know this. They source those from, I think, the medical field. And so any company could find out where they're coming from and put in the R&D to read those things. And they need to be replaced, you know, periodically. And so when you were saying about the controller costing $600, I'm like, you're totally right. These companies are going to have to figure out a more um, care rig style, you know, of getting their money back. But like, you know, um, so for some of our international listeners, um, care rig was one of the first companies to make those kind of ready-made coffee. Uh, machines. You pop in a pot, press a button, it makes the coffee. And it was uh, the razors and razor blades model, right? So if there's a way for a controller to, you know, cost, I mean, realistically, two to $300, and they find a way to generate that recurring revenue, um, that's a much better business model that more and more companies are leaning towards. And so for me, I feel like that's the next real breakthrough is someone coming out with a mindstream equivalent where you put in this disc that uh, into your machine or whatever, some kind of cartridge. And, you know, once a month or a few times a year, you replace that. It's going to measure your chemistry every 15 minutes without using up reagents. Um, that technology still exists. Someone just has to do the heavy lifting of, you know, putting into a consumer a consumer facing device. Yeah, like I see these maintenance kits for uh, some of these um, auto testers, and you can either do the maintenance yourself and order the kit, or you can send your unit off, and then they send you a a unit that the maintenance has already been performed upon. But to your point, if you can make the air the thing, which I know it's not this simple, but you know, because there's a little peristaltic pump inside of it, there's tubing that can clog. But if there's a way to make that hot swappable. Right. So you don't and then that gets shipped back in service, but the unit still stays put, although I guess what's left in there at that point. But um, there's something to be said for that. But, I, you know, there's also the whole IFTT, if then this or IF triple T, I forget um, if then the, if this, then that, you know, and some of the home automation stuff is reaching points of some level of standardization. So. If you're a Kamor or, or you know, one of these out, uh, companies on the outside of these reef automation products, why not just make your stuff compatible, you know, with Google, with HomeKit, with smart things and let people then start to build out their own automations. Um, I, you can't keep that all in a walled in garden forever is the other piece of it, right? And how much money are you going to spend uh, to make six apps into one, you know, like you're a good example of that. You don't mind opening up different apps for different tools. Now, if you can somehow I have a folder of apps yeah. with three pages in the folder, <laughs> I have muscle memory that will direct me to whichever app I'm going to. Yeah, I do not mind opening multiple apps. This is very much a white people problem, a first world problem. Be like, uh, oh, it's in a different app. It's going to take so much time to navigate to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a huge HomeKit guy uh, just because I don't trust Alexa or Google. Um, but, you know, HomeKit is really behind compared to Google and Alexa in terms of home automation and support for different products, partly because they just have higher, high security standards. But 
So I eventually, I just gave up and I just said, okay, fine. I'll just use the app that came with whatever product, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. so, but yeah, that's a good point. Making um, the, the, the razor, razor blade kind of thing, making it so that, uh, because that's the thing that scares me about those uh, auto testers is um, a lot can go wrong with them. You know, like I feel like that's just yet another thing I have to maintain. But if the maintenance is outsourced, okay, yeah, that might be interesting. You know, especially for things like alkalinity. I mean, the other I crap take, I don't care about. You know, what are you gonna say, sir? I take our water testing very seriously here at the studio. We have invested a lot of energy and effort to really making sure we're using our HANA checkers correctly with proper volumes um, backed up by scales and the scales are backed up by reference weights and oh my god I cannot wait till that magnesium comes out because you know I think salifert magnesium is the last just kind of old school kit that we're still using for measuring certain things. So we use HANA for alkalinity, calcium, nitrate, phosphate, and magnesium is the last kind of like really analog one. It still gives us really accurate results. It's just going to be really nice when all those are combined. And then the marine tester that can just do whatever test you want to do at a single time and then log those intelligently into a way that makes sense. And oh man, I'm excited. But yeah, I think we have a lot to be thankful for in the reef aquarium hobby as far as the progress, I know that some of the newer um, patients in our sessions for reef therapy, you know, we sound a lot like, you know, old guys talking about the good old days. But, you know, as far as equipment goes, there has never been a better time to be a reef hobbyist than right now. Right? Do you? I don't think anyone wants to wind back the clock to Iwakis and halides and air pump dosing, and you know if you have uh, higher demands, uh, a required obligatory calcium reactor, right? And that's everything about today's uh, scene on the reef aquarium hobby has made it more accessible, more precise, and more accurate. Like it's just it's just a real pleasant time to be a reef aquarium hobbyist. And so, you know, I know we uh, like to yell at the clouds a little bit, um, but this is one that was nice to kind of follow up on things we love about the aquarium hobby and talk about the things that we're thankful for as far as like the progress of the of the the equipment. You know, I think we just finally got a really big development on the heater space. So Innovative Marine, they tried to launch a, a proportional temperature coefficient style heater. It's called PTC heater, where the current that's being fed into the heating element um, is proportional to some you know, ideas or some internal circuitry. But these new PTC heaters from Shago don't require a specific kind of controller, and they're just proportional heating like a fan, right? Like the fan in our LEDs, they're running at a specific speed uh, proportional to the heat that needs to be so blown it's not off. On, off, so on, these off, PTC on, off, on, style off. Heaters. Is that what you're saying? It's like more continually I on to different so. intensity? Excuse I me. believe so. These are so new that I don't know for sure. But one thing I do know for sure is that the the technology means that the moment that they're exposed to air, if you're doing a water change or pull them out of the water for some reason, they just turn off. They just straight turn off. So we're finally getting some big improvements on the heater side. And hopefully that also translates into more reliable heaters down the road. 
That would That's be what I'm for. great for but us yes, controller you know, people, man, because the the one thing that burns out your uh, controller is uh, the heater turning on and off and on and off too frequently, right? So, uh, you, that, you want to tell us more about the energy bar that had the the crummy uh, power supply that you had to replace? <laughs> no, I th- I've I've moaned about that one enough, but but it, I, I'm just saying, you know, it's because um, I would rather use the temperature. Uh, thermometer built into my controller, but you know there is that general consensus Absolutely. that if you have an apex, you know, put an ink bird or something in between that that does the actuation of uh, uh, you know, and then set a wider temperature range. Um, I forget the thing inside the uh, that uh, that uh, actuates the power to the outlet. Um, I forget the term for it, but that's what uh, thermostatic said, switch. No. I don't know. It'll come to me like five seconds after we conclude this podcast. But uh, the listeners will know what I'm talking about. But that you know, there is a general recommendation of you know don't have your controller turn the heater on and off. You know, which is why I still use um, Eheim uh, Ebo Yager uh, heaters, and I use the thermostat inside the heater, and then the controller is sort of the override if the heater you know starts to go nuts. Um, but what you're yeah, telling no, me about these new heaters sounds thing. good. So, yeah, no, that's one thing that, uh, general, you know, controllers are really, really good for is that layer redundancy. But, um, man, it's been a fun session of reef therapy, just, you know, talking about everything that's great in the reef aquarium hobby. We focused a little bit more on the equipment, you know, and there's things about the livestock that I think we've kind of covered in the past, but I know we just had a Memorial day and that means a lot of kids are out of school and a lot of people are um, planning their vacations and planning to spend time away from their tanks. And this, is a great time to remind you guys that we did a whole session talking about how to put your tank on cruise control and lots of tips and tricks to just make sure you're really comfortable when you leave that everything about your reef tank will be great so if you haven't heard that one or watched that one before make sure to check it out on your favorite podcatcher or on youtube um it's literally how to make your tank coast it wasn't that long ago um but um i want to thank everybody for tuning in if you're listening on uh, podcast form, make sure to rate us on your favorite podcatcher so we can rise up in the ranks. And if you have any comments for us, if you're watching us on YouTube, make sure to share those down below and uh, we'll catch you guys on another session very soon. Thanks for joining me, Mark. Yeah, thank you. And uh, tomorrow night I'll, I'll be on with uh, Keith on Reef Bum. So ask lots of questions for that as well. I don't know when this will post. Maybe it'll post yeah. after the fact. Yeah, two things. By the time you're listening to this, probably Mark will have been on Reef Bum and you'll get uh, Mark Vanderwall without Jake Adams talking to uh, Keith Berkelhammer. Um, and I'm actually fascinated. I cannot wait uh, to listen to it. It'll just be so nice to be in the background, just kind of seeing what Mark has to say. I'm sure I'll throw down a super chat and try to promote that uh, that uh, live stream when it's going on. But also, we are. I just scheduled a premiere tomorrow, specifically around your uh, live stream. So it's going to be two hours before at 3 p.m. I'm, you know, when this comes out, it'll probably be too late. But go back and check out the video on the Reef Builders channel of Juan Gabriel Grajales' um, reef tank. It's probably the best reef tank in Mexico, and it's got a lot going for it. You don't want to miss it because even though I think I know everything, I'm always double checking, and it was really nice. To 
to visit this guy who's using the Triton method and a lot of um, high-tech equipment to just grow some of the best acros. Go to Reef Builders. Um, by the time you listen to this, I'm sure that video will be uh, up. And uh, it's just such a fascinating reef with lots of awesome close-ups of his corals. So um, until next time, we'll catch you guys on the next session of Reef Therapy. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye, Mark. Bye.